0: Good morning, church. My name is Tyler, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview. And welcome, and happy Mother's Day. We want to give a special shout out this morning to all of our moms who we know will be watching this message. And I want to say a special happy Mother's Day to my own mom, who I know will be watching later. This morning, we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 5. And I'm not going to lie, it's an interesting chapter to be preaching on for Mother's Day. There seems to be more references to rites of passage on male body parts than in many other spots of the scripture, but I promise that we're not going to spend the entirety of our time speaking on that subject. Why don't we pray as we begin? Jesus, I thank you for who you are, and we thank you this morning for mothers. Thank you for the joy they bring, the example they have been to us. We thank you, Jesus, this morning as we spend time now in your word that you would speak to us, challenge us, equip us, and remind us of who you are and the call you've placed on all of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. And if you've downloaded the sermon notes on our website, I encourage you to use those to follow along and to engage with the scriptures this morning. But to begin, we're going to begin in verse 1. Let me read for you this morning. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You, who are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I wonder, given the times we're in, if freedom... Means something different to us now than it may have a few months ago? Is freedom knowing that you'll make rent next month? Is freedom knowing that you've got enough food in your pantry to get you through another week? Is freedom knowing that you can still go outside and enjoy creation even if it means staying in your backyard? Is freedom knowing that we can still worship God? And even if we can't go to church, that we still are called to be the church. Maybe for you moms this morning, freedom is the opportunity just simply to sleep in. Maybe breakfast in bed or a home-cooked meal this evening. For Paul, as he addresses the believers in Galatia here in chapter 5, he begins with this summary statement. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. For Paul, this is the heart of of not only Galatians 5, but really the heart of his entire letter to the believers in Galatia. And what Paul begins to do here is he begins to apply this statement to a number of areas over the next two chapters. Up until this point, Paul has used two main images to to help his audience understand again what this law is like. In Galatians 3.34 and and 4 verse 2, he uses this illustration, this image of a schoolmaster or a guardian. In Galatians 4.22, he uses the image of a bondwoman. And now here in our text this morning, Paul introduces a third image, that of a yoke, we read in Galatians 5, 1b, stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, this wouldn't be an unfamiliar metaphor, an unfamiliar me- uh, image to the Galatians. And perhaps it isn't an unfamiliar metaphor or image to us either. You see, the yoke was used throughout the scriptures. And also, it's an all too common piece of farming equipment that was very well known through this agriculturally driven economy. Jesus himself even spoke of a yoke in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and 29, we read, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest For your souls. You see, the image of a yoke often represented slavery or service and and control by someone over another person's life. It's why we often hear this yoke, this, this large wooden beam that would have been placed upon the backs of oxen in order for that farmer to steer those oxen wherever he desired them to go. In essence, to till his soil and fulfill his purpose. Paul desires nothing more than for these believers in Galatia to find freedom from the yoke of religion and to put on instead the yoke of Christ. Following in Matthew eleven thirty, 30 we read, for my yoke, Jesus says, is easy and my burden is light. Now this word easy here in the original Greek language is is best translated kind or even gracious. Essentially the exact opposite of that of a slave driver or task master. The way of Christ, while not always easy or simple, is a way in which we experience Christ's kindness and graciousness. One commentary wrote this. He said, the yoke of Christ frees us to fulfill his will while the yoke of the law enslaves us. And so the question this morning I have for us is, what is the controlling force upon your life right now? And from our text this morning, we can see that it's one of two things. That it's either the the yoke of slavery, complete with its legalism, its law, and its legislations, Or that it's that of the yoke of freedom in Christ, complete with its gentleness and goodness and grace. Yet I recognize that even freedom, that even this feeling and experience of freedom can be overwhelming for some individuals. You hear stories of Individuals who are recently released from incarceration, having spent many years imprisoned and in a controlled and regulated system. And upon release, this newfound freedom to them is, is simply too much to handle. It's overwhelming. And so then they commit another crime in order to be back in an environment where to them it feels more safe and controlled. But Paul here, as he addresses the Galatians, encourages them, charges them to stand firm, to not fear. Perhaps the word of the prophet Isaiah would be ones that their hearts and minds would turn to in this season. We read in Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My friends, hear me when I say this this morning. We are free. That Christ has set us free. And so now Paul takes these verses that follow in chapter 5 to further explain his point. Verses 2 to 6 serve as yet another reminder by Paul to the believers in Galatia and to us that when a Christian turns from the grace he or she has in Christ and instead desires to follow the law, it profits them what? It profits them nothing. There's no greater gain. There's no added value. There's no increased benefit to them. Instead, those who desire to follow the law Will be robbed of the riches of Christ. And so Paul writes this in verse 4 You who are trying to be justified by the law have alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And as I read through a number of commentaries preparing for this message this morning, there were a number of differing perspectives in these verses from a number of different theologians. Some ask, does it say that a Christian can lose their salvation? Or instead, does it just speak to a Christian failing to live in light of the grace of the gospel instead of in slavery to the law? Other commentary writers said, or perhaps it's somewhere in between. And while it may not be crystal clear what Paul is specifically saying here, we pick up in verse 5. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We could essentially sum up Galatians in these two verses. I feel that this is the very heartbeat of Paul here. We see every element he seeks to communicate in his letter in these two verses. We see the the outworking of the Holy Spirit, faith and righteousness, Christ Jesus himself and the arguments surrounding circumcision. And so then he concludes with this reminder to the believers in Galatia and to us for that matter. That what is most critical, that what is the role of a spirit-filled believer what it ought to look like for us living out the gospel is faith expressing itself through love. Our second point this morning, beginning in verse 7, I want to see in this scripture, and I, and I, I wrestle in this scripture with whether or not Paul was actually a track and fields athlete or not. And, and it may never be known, truly, but it's clear from his writing this morning, he loved using the imagery of a race. He uses this athletic language in Philippians 2 and Galatians 2 and 2 Timothy 4 and again here in Galatians 5. It says in verse 7 and following, you are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of person does not come from the one who calls you. A little geese works through the whole batch of dough I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. There isn't a whole lot of cohesiveness in this portion of the scriptures. Paul really is kind of all over the place in these verses. We go from running to baking bread to persecution to to even circumcision. And, And I don't know, but from what I see all over Facebook and Instagram during this season, during this pandemic, that this sounds an awful lot maybe just like the average day of the average mom. I mean, aside from the circumcision part. But am I right about yeast? Because if you're someone who enjoys cooking, enjoys baking, this was one of the hardest items. I mean, aside from toilet paper, and that was just ludicrous. But yeast was one of those items you couldn't find on the grocery store shelves. It was impossible to find, because baking became this global phenomena that when, no one, when everyone had nothing else really better to do at home than it was apparently then to bake. I remember Charity and I one day were looking on Facebook and this woman in our community had a bunch of yeast and it was set to expire in a few days. And so she began offering it to anybody who wanted a small Ziploc baggie. And so Charity and I jumped on it. We said, yes, please, could we have some yeast? I mean, it was like as if we found a pot of gold. And so we baked some Pascha and we celebrated Easter and it was a good day. But Paul's use of yeast is an illustration that is so important because just like yeast works itself through the entire batch of dough, so does it remind us of the danger of these Judaizers and the influence that they were having and then how this false teaching and false doctrine, when left unchecked, would would permeate through the fabric of this culture. That this warped and misleading theology would be pervasive throughout if left, like I said, unchecked. Paul also likens this journey of faith to the Galatian believers to, to that of a race, And just like getting cut off in a race disrupts the runner from accomplishing their goal, so does false teaching disrupt the life of a believer. It impedes them. It acts like a a stumbling block. It it wrecks the race outcome. It's again a warning from Paul not to stray from the truth of the gospel and turn to another gospel like he warns the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6. There's nothing more important to Paul it's why he seems to go off the rails here now as we get closer to verse 12. Paul's reference at the end wishing for these agitators to go as far as emasculating themselves just seems crazy. Paul's so angry. He's, he's so fed up with these agitators who are trying so hard to simply impose this law onto the lives of these Galatian believers. that he says, fine, if you want to preach circumcision, circumcision, why don't you just go to the fullest extent? Okay, that's enough on that topic for one sermon. Because I want to ensure that we have time to look at this morning, my third point. What does it look like to have a spirit-filled life? And let's look at it two ways this morning. Firstly, what it isn't. And then secondly, what it is. Let me pick up in verse 13 when we look at what it isn't. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. At the close of an important speech to Congress on January 6, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt shared his vision for the kind of world he desired after the war was over. And in his speech, he shared four freedoms, four basic freedoms he desired for all people. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And albeit those are good, I I don't think they're sufficient. I think there could be a fifth freedom that could be included in this. We need to be free from ourselves and the struggle of our sinful nature. As Paul articulates here what a spirit-filled life isn't, we're reminded in verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see, Paul reminds us that freedom can be a dangerous thing. But it can also be a very beautiful thing. And what you and I choose to do with that freedom speaks volumes to the place that Christ has in our lives. For those of you who maybe grew up in the church in the early 50s and 60s and 70s, you might remember a tract that was widely distributed in those years. It was called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. And Munger's tract explores what it would look like to have Christ come and make his home in our hearts. And through the tract, Christ arrives in varying rooms of our hearts. In the living room, we prepare to meet Christ daily. In the dining room, we examine together what appetite should and should not control us. We even explore closets in our lives that Christ can help clean out. This tract helped believers and even unbelievers to understand the, the rightful place that Christ were to have in our hearts, that he would be Savior and Lord, that he would be central and I think it's a helpful illustration as we continue on this morning to ask the question: do we use our freedom to indulge in our flesh? Meaning, do we sue, do we pursue, sorry, our passions and, and our own pleasures for our own selfish gain, for our own joy and fulfillment? Paul wrote that lengthy list in verse 19 to 21 to help us understand what those would look like. Or do we use our freedom instead to serve one another humbly? in love do we get that life is more than just about our own selfish want that we are called to put others first to pursue their betterment before our own my buddy dan who's a pastor here in calgary said it so well last sunday in his sermon he said this he said god help us to love our neighbor more than we love our normal right I think that's what, it's called, what it looks like to be called, to be living a spirit-filled life. And so that brings us to part two this morning of what is a spirit-filled life. And here what Paul uses to explain this is perhaps something that you're aware of and remember or you've heard before even. It's the fruit of the spirit. Let me read beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Again, such thing, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. If you wanted to summarize this final part of Paul's letter to the believers in Galatia, it would be this. It is the spirit that enables us to produce fruit. And this is so important for us today to remember because I think if we're totally honest with ourselves, we can do a lot by our own strength and by our own efforts. But there's a major difference here between works and fruit. One commentary writer shared it this way, this difference between works and fruit. He said, a machine in a factory works and it turns out a product, but it could never manufacture fruit. You see, because fruit must grow out of life. And in the case of believer, it's the life in the spirit. If you're a Christian this morning, you are called to produce fruit. Jesus reminded us even of this in John's gospel in chapter 15, verses one and two say, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You see, we aren't even called just to produce fruit, but Jesus said to be even more fruitful. And that fruitfulness is because the spirit is at work in and through us. Paul uses the language of keeping in step with the spirit. So what does that look like? What does it look like for you and I to keep in step with the Spirit? Well, it's the imagery that Paul uses here, not so much of of a race, but rather of that of a walk. That in a sense, we're walking side by side, not running ahead or or even rather lagging behind, but that we're in step with the Spirit. And in our lives, the things that will ultimately cultivate keeping in step with the Spirit are things like time in the Word, prayer, praise and worship, fellowship with other Christians, and ensuring we keep aware of the weeds that may arise that would seek to choke out this fruit. Because the danger of not keeping in step with the Spirit is is given to us actually in Hebrews 9.14, where it reminds us that the flesh produces dead Works. They're, they're of no value. They're of no benefit. There's no life within them when produced solely by the flesh. Instead, it's dead. There's just no life. The things, these things only serve to fulfill our own selfish wants and desires. But the characteristic that God wants, that he desires, is found again in these ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Because again, these are produced out of life. Imagine with me for a moment that set before you was, was a table. And on that table was an abundant spread of, of all sorts of delicious fruit. There's, there's pears and, and mangoes and ripe blackberries and honeydew melon and, and pineapple. Whatever fruit would be appealing to your eye. Now let me ask you a question this morning. What would you do with that fruit? Some of you might snap a picture of it because if you don't put it on Instagram, did you ever really eat it to begin with, right? Right? Maybe some of you might just look at it and just admire it for its beauty. Some of you might paint a painting. I don't know about you, but I remember going to like thrift stores when I was a kid, and you'll always find in a thrift store that painting in the corner of that bowl of fruit. I don't know whoever decided to paint that bowl of fruit, but it was always there. And maybe if you're that artistic type, you'd paint that bowl of fruit. But does any of that really sound like the best idea? No. Why? Because fruit was meant to be eaten It was meant to be experienced. Just like this table set before us, the the fruit of the Spirit is designed to be produced and experienced. Because our world around us is starving. Not for mango or a piece of pineapple. No, that's just silly. But our world is starving for the fruit of the Spirit. They're starving for joy, for peace, and love. Love. And they're searching for it to satiate themselves. But these things cannot be experienced outside of a spirit-filled life. My friends, hear me this morning. We know where the table is, this table full of fruit. We are called to live out this fruit of the spirit. Because as we as Christians live out this fruit of the spirit, in so doing, others as well, as it says in Psalm 34, 8, can taste And see that the Lord is good. To taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we're called to do. That's the life we're called to, church. Let me pray this morning. Jesus, I thank you for who you are, for life in the Spirit for these fruit of the Spirit that you call us to live out daily. And I pray that, Lord, as we go into this week ahead, that we will seek to live those out. Lord, we do again thank you for our moms, and we pray a special blessing upon them as they have modeled the fruit of the Spirit to us, Lord. May we acknowledge that and thank them for that even this morning. And thank you for your word, for how it is spoken to us. And I pray that, Lord, as we go into this week again, that we will seek to live out this fruit of the Spirit, to demonstrate the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit to a world that is starving, that they may taste and see that you are good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.